The primary purpose of this podcast is to educate and inform. The views, information, or opinions expressed by hosts or guests are their own. Neither the show nor any of its content should be construed as investment advice or as a recommendation to buy or sell any particular security. Security-specific information shared on this podcast should not be relied upon as a basis for your own investment decisions. Be sure to do your own research. The podcast hosts and participants may have a position in the securities mentioned personally through sub-accounts and or through separate funds and may change their holdings at any time. Welcome to This Week in Intelligent Investing, where we examine timely and timeless investing topics to help you become a better investor. Enjoy authentic, unscripted discussion featuring Phil Ordway, Elliot Turner, and other thought-leading investors, brought to you by MOI Global. And now, here's your host, John Michalczewicz. Welcome everyone to this special episode of This Week in Intelligent Investing. Great to have my co-hosts, Elliot Turner and Phil Ordway with me, as well as a very special guest today whom uh, Phil will introduce. Uh, Phil, over to you. Thanks, John. So I should start out by thanking uh, loyal listener Adam Schwartz for making this introduction today to our special guest, uh, Spencer Jacob. Many of you will know him as the editor of the Heard on the Street column in the Wall Street Journal, which I certainly have been reading forever and seen his byline many, many times over the years. Uh, before that, he wrote the Head of the Tape and, and the Lex column, actually for the Financial Times. And actually before that, which is something I want to talk about, I think it was about 20 years ago, he made the move um, from being an analyst at Credit Suisse, and he was at one point the director of emerging market research and made the jump over to journalism. So uh, Spencer's written a book called The Revolution That Wasn't GameStop, Reddit, and the Fleecing of Small Investors. He was kind enough to send us an advanced copy. Uh, I read every word of it. I was fascinated by the whole thing. Before we just started recording, I told Spencer, I thought this was, I think this whole episode is going to go down with, you know, everything from the Dutch tulips up through LTCM and beyond is just kind of one of those seminal moments in financial history that we're all going to look back on. 10 and 50 years ago, uh, or 10 and 50 years from now, and just kind of shake our heads and wonder. And I, I thought the book was fascinating. Spencer actually covers a lot of that history in the book. So Spencer, thank you for joining us. Hey, thanks for having me. I want to jump right in. And I think the part of this that I still can't wrap my head around, and I'm curious as to your answer here, you lay out a whole litany of causes and factors as to kind of how we got here, right? And so it's everything from the gamification of trading apps, you know, the crossover between this and online sports gambling, the ubiquity of trading apps and the cost-free or lack of commissions, the boredom of the pandemic, the stimulus checks that came with the pandemic, the social media power of reinforcing social behavior, uh, you know, just kind of the randomness of, of human behavior. This sort of behavior has happened at least somewhat similarly before. Uh, e even some things that I think are kind of further down the list, like, you know, the, the lack of faith in systems, the lack of faith in our market economy, um, you know, which one of those factors do you think stands out or, or are you like me and that I, I almost portion kind of equal blame on those factors? I guess it's hard to say. I think that if any of those pieces had been lacking, then this wouldn't have happened in, in the way that it did. I mean, mm. it, it was really a, a perfect storm. So I think that if you didn't have zero dollar commissions, there's no way that it could have happened. It would have been impossible, right? I mean, and it, it wouldn't be possible to trade 
10,000 times a year if you're right. a small money investor, obviously. Um, you know, even if it were $5, you'd be, you know, spending 50 grand just on 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 commissions. Um, but I, I think that you kind of cross psychologically, you cross a Rubicon when somebody tells you that something is free. And I think what the, these brokers, because Schwab and Fidelity, everybody else went over to make trading free in late 2019, and they were worried about it. They didn't rely so much on commissions. They can make money without having commissions, but it was a big source of income for them. And so when they matched Robinhood, which was the, the pioneer in doing this, they thought that it was going to be bad, but they just had to bite the bullet because so many people were opening accounts there. And what they didn't understand was that trading is fun. For these young people, trading is a form of entertainment. And when something mm. that's entertaining and something that's uh, that's fun becomes free, then you take as much of it as you can. You overuse it. You overdo it. And so that was a, a crucial element. That This could not have happened without that. Social media, though, um, I think I was a bit naive going into this. I kind of compared this to like an amped up Yahoo Finance message board from 20-something years ago. And and it isn't. I mean, I, I think my understanding of social media has improved dramatically as a, you know, just through researching this book uh, and speaking with social psychologists and experts in uh, in influence and in how someone becomes an influencer. And that that's a vital element too, because the the way that that messages are are amplified and the way that other messages are buried, let's say, Let's say Phil, uh, who's a very reasonable guy, you know, went on um, some message board on on the internet, one frequented by people who, you know, are are into YOLO trading. Uh, the people who did this and said, you know, I put five percent of my portfolio into the stock, and here are my five reasons. A cerebral argument is going to put people to sleep on that board. No offense, you know, but it's it's not right. going to rise on the board. Now, let's say that uh, somebody else goes on there and says. And even if they, it's not true because it's a pseudonym and there's no way to verify it. Uh, I took out a second mortgage on my house. I bought out of the money call options on this stock. It's going to the moon, you know, 10 rocket ship emojis. That is much more likely to be upvoted on a forum like Reddit, or you're much more likely just by expressing self-confidence to get followed on one of those social networks like Twitter or Facebook where you, or TikTok or YouTube, where you get followers and you get subscribers. Right. And so. More. This is a case when more extreme, more confident behavior uh, rose in terms of attention, and more nuanced behavior didn't even get seen. So, when you had 10 million young people come into the market who are accustomed to getting advice on everything from influencers and from strangers and social media, they didn't even see Phil's message. They saw the crazy message, and that was normalized. That kind of behavior was normalized, and that was seen as kind of how you invest. And so that was a pretty important part of it too. And so it's hard to say what, which one could have happened with the other. And then of course the pandemic just supercharged everything. Right. No, I totally agree. You can never get a crazy event like this without three, four, five, six things all working in the same direction. But I, I on the topic of social media, I found that particularly interesting too. You do go into a lot of the background there and you interviewed some really interesting people. I should mention at the beginning, by the way, that I think I, I'm in the same boat that I totally underestimate social media a lot of the time. I also have a love-hate relationship with it, but I think this might have been one of the greatest opening lines in a book I've ever read. When you wrote, I'll never forget the day I found out my sons were degenerates. And by that, you meant that you realized that they were actually on Reddit, right? And, and yeah. reading this sort of thing. So through their eyes, 
is there a big gap between how you see it and how they see it? Yeah, you know, it's this, uh, this it's whole funny. episode. So my, I mean? my sons are pretty sensible boys, but um, I have three boys. One is one will have nothing to do with social media. He's uh, the sensible one, the middle son. But the uh, the oldest and youngest were on this forum, and my so my now fifteen year old um, just last week. I, I you know tell me if you get this. He explained to me. Said I, I showed him a meme, something I, I saw on on Twitter. He said, "Dad, it's not a meme." So yeah, it's a meme. He said no because by the very fact that you're showing it to me is not a meme because you're too old to appreciate a meme and show me. You don't even know what a meme is. I said, "Yeah, it's it's a meme." You know what are you talking about? So I mean, it, it's like you know, I think I understand. You know what it is. I, I think I got the joke, and I mean. You know, and a lot of them are, are are pretty funny, but according to him, and he's probably not the only one, I'm just completely clueless and just the wrong age and the wrong mindset to to kind of get it. And the the central, uh, not to jump ahead, but one of the central characters in this story, um, who I think you guys would get along with uh, because he had a lot of the values of, of patience uh, and analysis that uh, a value investor, that a successful value investor has. Uh, but also became the hero to this meme stock army, um, which is Keith Gill. I mean, he wasn't known as Keith Gill to the people. Right. I, I follow his journey from beginning to end. And the the funny thing is through 90% of this story, I follow his journey, but he was kind of ignored. He was a nobody. He was kind of made fun of for almost the entire time for, you know, doubling his money. And people are like, dude, you should sell. And he, you know, explained, no, that's not how you, you know, do it. And this is a common behavioral bias. And kind of, you know, boring them to death. And then once he became thrust into the spotlight, because he's 34 years old at the time this happens, and, you know, very much sort of, I guess, the still the right age to do this, you know, he just started posting these brilliant memes and screenshots of his account. Nobody knew who he was, and that he was a CFA, by the way. And he his influence rocketed a million fold on on these forums and he became the person everyone looked to. He could have made a, a fortune 10 times as much if he had just used his, a little bit of his influence to enrich himself and he didn't. Yeah, I think that's part of it that I totally and completely underappreciated until the past, call it 24 months. His techniques on, on Wall Street bets are almost exactly the same techniques that Elon Musk uses on Twitter, right? And, and he's the world's yeah. richest, richest man right now. So a yeah. corollary to that theory that I have is that it's this amazing feedback loop between a very small group of standard bearers. So in this case, Keith Gill and Elon Musk, and this army of almost entirely anonymous or pseudonymous users on social media. So would you agree that this would have been completely and totally impossible if social media like Reddit or Twitter required verification of users and you had to be under your real name? Maybe. I'm not sure about that because Look, there's different, you have to understand the nuances between different types of social media. So you have Reddit. Reddit is, if I were to go on Reddit, I don't have, I think I have a karma of one uh, on Reddit, so which is as low as you could possibly have. You can't be zero. But if I were to put a post on Reddit that somehow went viral, then I could be on the front page of Reddit. If people enough people liked it, if the thing I said was funny or dumb enough or whatever, and I, I happen to use my own name because I'm a reporter, I'm not allowed to you know, to have a pseudonym uh, when I go and approach people. That's why I, I I have an account. But people, there are people on Twitter. Elon Musk is a real person. I mean, there there are a lot of people who are who are real. Uh, there are a lot of people who have kind of names that aren't their real name, but there are a lot of people who do use their real name. And so there's different 
there's Facebook and there's TikTok and there's YouTube. And those are all based on followers. And I think that's why those social networks are more valuable, by the way, and Instagram, which is the you right. know, part of Facebook, as we know, but that's a very valuable social network where if you're Kim Kardashian, people are going to follow you. If you're, you know, Jane Doe, people are not going to follow you necessarily. And um, Reddit, Reddit sold for, I think the founders of Reddit got like 10 million bucks, I think each or in total, I can't remember now when they sold it initially uh, to Condé Nast, which is just chump change in Hollywood, right? I mean, this was when Facebook was was taking off like crazy and Rupert Murdoch paid a bunch of money for MySpace. And it, it just wasn't, it, it, the, those pseudonyms um, don't make it that valuable, but they do, they did play a role because it was a perfect place for this to happen because you could be really boastful about stuff right. you did. And people felt very safe sharing things they did and sharing screenshots of their finances with their name. That's what out. I mean. I don't think yeah. anybody would be sharing this stuff if they had to put it under their real name. I also don't think you'd get the really crazy, you know, the death threats and the super mm-hmm. macho behavior and all that kind of stuff, which I think would have kept a big lid on all this thing. Yeah, no, I think that's correct. Yeah. I think it was yeah. a perfect place for it to happen. And yeah, and it's where all the the kind of the crazier aspects of it emerge from too. But I think you're right that some people still do that under their real name. So it's not necessarily oh, sure. about do. pseudonymity versus, uh, you know, having to stand up to certain uh, actualities of who you are. Um, but also, I think the pandemic and living life virtually through like mediating through a screen with people perhaps was a confounding factor there. Um, yeah, where people yeah. had to had to do that. And I, you know, I did latch on to that quote where you cited the Washington State University grad students uh, on, and the study of those who express confidence getting and albeit being wrong, getting twice as many followers as those with nuanced predictions. Like it's not the land of nuance. So I thought that was pretty interesting. Um, maybe talk about that a little, a little more too. Yeah. I mean, if you, um, if you are, and it, this doesn't have to be on social media. This is just has always been true. And I think that it's been even before psychology was a formal study. I think people understood this to be true. I think politicians and demagogues, especially kind of innately understand it, that if you're very confident in your assertions, um, even if they're they're wrong or they're fishy, or it's just kind of, there's an obvious flaw in them, the more confidently you state them, the more likely you are to people are to, to listen to you. And the more hedged you are, they're like, well, I think that there's a chance and there might be. And on the one hand and on the other hand, so you're, if you're that type of person, it's the fox and the hedgehog. You know, if you are more likely, you're more likely to be correct and you're also much more likely to be uh, ignored. So that's, and and this guy, Keith Gill, who I, I follow the story through him, he, he transformed in the way that he communicated. I don't know if it was intentional or I, I think it was intentional and not in a way to get gain more influence, but I think he did it um, because I think he was afraid that he was gaining so much influence. So he didn't say things explicitly. He didn't say, I think this is a good stock. I think, you know, he never said, I think you should buy the stock. He certainly never said you should all pile into the stock because I did, but I, he realized how influential he had become. And he, he did have a job as a, technically as a financial advisor, uh, though he didn't have clients. And so he was treading a kind of a dangerous line there. And I think, you know, I don't think he stepped over it, but I think that he must have been cognizant of it. But but by doing that and by just having these funny memes and the screenshot of his account without his name on it, he became really influential. And then there's this other thing called social proof, 
which is part of this, which is that I don't know if you've ever been flew someplace, flew to the West Coast or came back from a trip uh, to Europe or Asia and you were up in the middle of the night and this this stuff is still on TV. If you're ever up really late, there are these like these infomercials and it's some guy getting out of a fancy car in front of a house with like a blonde under each arm and a boat and a, you know, a Maserati. And he wants to sell you a, a course. And of course, they're, they're going to show you, you know, all, all this stuff because he's got all this stuff, probably rented it, but, you know, he's got all this, this fancy stuff. And so he, he must be successful. He must be somebody to listen to. And then they show you somebody just like you, some kind of schlub, you know, type of person who's up in the middle of the night and worried about money and how they transform their lives. And, you know, they, they're testimonial. And so that, that played a, a big role too, the whole idea of social proof and of sympathizing with people who were like you, as opposed to listening to experts. You know, expert opinion has really been kind of downgraded the last several years. I think it's, you know, you can blame whatever, you know, but I, I think the, I'm not going to get get political here, but I mean, the certainly the last six, seven, eight years, you know, the trust put in journalists and experts generally has has declined dramatically. Yeah, that that is without a doubt. I also want to ask about Robinhood a little bit. I've been openly critical of Robinhood on here. You go into quite a bit of detail about Robinhood and its business model, so I don't want to put words in your mouth, but I'm curious as to what your big takeaways would be about Robinhood's culpability in this whole thing as an arms dealer. Again, those are my words, not yours. But then also, um, I want to get your thoughts on on one thing that you wrote that I kind of disagreed with was that uh, you had this attitude that curbs on this sort of behavior to try to stop this from happening would potentially restrict free speech or economic opportunity. And I wondered if you could elaborate on that, because I agree that there's a whack-a-mole element to this whole thing, that if you clamp down on Robinhood specifically, or if you clamp down on one area of speculation, it's kind of human nature that it'll pop up again in some other form very quickly. But I don't see a ton of downside in doing it, at least for any short-term benefit. Like I, I, just, I, I, don't, I don't think I agree that it would stop any sort of progress, I guess. Well, okay, let me, I'll, I'll answer the, the second part of your question first. Um, okay. So let me clarify. I don't think that. I think I point out that that's how they, that's what they say. So that's, that's how they okay. defend themselves. Like if you say anything to Robin, they're like, we, you're just trying to hold people back. We're democratizing finance. We're democratizing investing. You just want people the kind of, you know, to stay, basically they're, they're not saying it in so many words, but like stay poor. So Charlie Munger and Warren Buffett, as you know, uh, both came out and, and criticized Robinhood specifically. And, you know, what do they have to gain criticizing Robinhood? Nothing. Does it matter to them? Is if, if anything, you know, if you're the type of person who benefits from Mr. Market being irrational, then you would like these people to keep doing what they do, right? If you were completely self-interested, then you like manias and you like panics because you can take advantage. That's that's good for a patient long-term investor like them. So they were, I think, being totally altruistic and they they got attacked by the, the PR people of Robinhood. And at the same time, if you have a, a social network that hurts people, the sort of move fast and break things attitude like Facebook and whatever, where teens harm themselves and things like that, they'll say, like, you know, you're restricting free speech. It's the First Amendment. They wrap the, both social networks and Robinhood will wrap themselves 
in the American flag and the First Amendment and economic opportunity and yada, yada. And no, I don't agree with the, with the argument that it would violate it at all. Uh, I think that uh, something could be done. I think it's very difficult to, to do anything. I think that those those defenses will will prevail because not only are those defenses very kind of potent and they just go back to the same playbook again and again, but also they've got good lobbyists, you know, and uh, and consumer advocates don't don't have as much pull. And so I think that this is a country, unfortunately, where like, you know, gambling gets legalized and all kinds of of stuff that shouldn't, you know, that should be more restricted and and there should be guardrails. The guardrails eventually get get taken down and eroded because there's too much money to be made. So I don't like Robin Hood's business model at all. It's a race to the bottom. I mean, they um they're not serving their customers well. And I think it's the basic truism that, you know, you when you're investing or you're doing anything with money, you want somebody who's paid on the back end, not the front end. And they are very much paid on the front end. So their whole business model, the way that they can have so many people with tiny accounts, not charge them commissions, is that they um, they get paid for routing the orders. That In 2020, that was eight, about 80% of the money they made. And the rest was like margin lending and lending out stock and things like that. Uh, and they want you to trade a lot. And the, the whole app is set up to... I mean, it, it's not, they don't want you to lose money, but the whole app, all, all the behavior that they encourage is deleterious financially to an investor. Trading a lot, FOMO, you know, checking your account a lot. Their active investors check their account over seven times a day. Right. Yeah, yeah, that's I, something that's so tough and I'm so torn about because on the one hand, it does truly democratize investing, driving these commissions down to zero, you'd imagine someone with $100 when commissions are $10, even buying the spiders, yeah, right? To have 10% of your stash go to commissions, you're, you're fighting a big headwind in compounding. On the other hand, I, I think the study you referenced about the change in turnover going from two to $1 commissions and then from one to zero was like an exponential effect. And yeah. I know there are sites that like, when you do something that, uh, that's contra a goal, you have to pay a fine to a friend for it just to like impose some sort of discipline on your behavior. And that zero commission kind of takes away any sense of discipline, rationality, or patience. And you could act with compulsion instead of thought. Um, yeah, and totally, that seems to have totally. been a, a and, big and they, and they want you to act fast. I mean, they, they make it so frictionless because they, they, but that's the thing is like, you know, then they, they have a lot of competitors too, a lot of people, a lot of copycats because that's, that's what you need to do to succeed. I mean, I think Silicon Valley gets that. So, you you know, I, I'm sure that, that you guys talk a lot about investor psychology and behavioral finance and things like that. And the thing is that human psychology, the human psyche hasn't changed for a long time, won't change for a long time. It changes very slowly, right? right? I mean, it's developed over eons. So that's why you have manias, panics, and crashes because, you know, because humans are the same. And then there's always a new group that comes into the market that hasn't experienced the thing the last group has. And they go through and they make the same mistakes again. And the same people will make the same mistakes again, even. But what has changed is the understanding of psychology uh, that these guys have. And they understand just the way casinos understand psychology, right? A casino knows that you're going to have like a, when you have those bars go around that cherry, oh man, if that cherry had just been one bar higher, I would have made the jackpot. I was so close. It's a near miss. Or look at that person. That person won all this money from the casino. Lights went off and whatever. Why, you know, why does the casino celebrate 
when the lights, you know, when someone wins a lot of money from them, it's because it, you know, it, it encourages everybody else to gamble more. Somebody's got to win, but that the house always wins in the long run. Why, why, why is it this color? Why do they have these bright lights? Why do they have these, you know, they're all things. I mean, Robin, the one thing Robin Hood doesn't do is give you free drinks, you know, when you're gambling. Right. I mean, but everything else gives you a free is, stock though, <laughs> gives you a free stock. Exactly. Which is a lottery like element and it yep. gives you confetti, although they took away that feature. So it, it's, you know, they understand the psychological buttons that, that they're pushing and social media understands the psycho psychological buttons they're pushing. Have you, I'm sure you guys all have Facebook accounts and things like that. And you don't check it for a while. You get a, an email. Hey, it's been a while. Hey, your friend posted, Hey, look what you're missing. Right. I mean, they, they need you to engage, right? Because you don't pay anything for your Facebook account, but you are the product and you are the product in the same way for Robinhood, except in a more explicit way, because they need you to be active and some, you know, okay. And I just wanted to go back to another thing you said, uh, Elliot, you said that, oh, well, good. You have mixed feelings because they democratize finance. I think that finance has been democratized already. So all the competitive pressures that led us to where we are today and all the technological advances, I mean, isn't it pretty miraculous that for a $0 commission, you can buy SPY for 0.03% and not check it. And they're not going to charge you any money for not checking your account or not trading. You could you know, invest for almost nothing. And all those those studies you see, well, if you had just invested a dollar back in 1926, you'd have this many dollars. No, you wouldn't, right? First, there's no index fund. Just reinvesting dividends would have cost you money. Everything would have cost you money. There were no tax efficient wrappers. There was nothing. You just were getting the, and and plus, if you if you had a dollar, nobody would take your money. In 1926, you had to have a lot of money for, for brokers to help themselves to it, right? So, you know. At things, it, it, it's it's great where we are today. It has been democratized. You don't need Robinhood to do it for you, and Robinhood is the to me is the the dark side of that. And like it's like so many other things, right? I mean, like we have all, all this nutritious food available year round that like our great grandparents you know couldn't have dreamt of, and then we we eat Cheetos, right? I mean, like you know you you've had like every, everything's become so easy and so cheap, but then doesn't mean that we'll we'll act in the way that's that's best for ourselves because the people want to sell you Cheetos, right? I mean, so that's 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 what's happening. I think it's it's good that people are get are at least young people are opening accounts and developing an interest in finance. That's that's the one good thing. Right. I, I agree. And I, I have this notion that finance kind of takes every good idea and then just takes it too far. So I agree. I think the the real groundwork in quote unquote, democratizing finance happened 40 years ago, right? When when commissions were deregulated and, and Schwab came on the scene and Vanguard came on the scene, and now we've probably gone too far. So I wonder if you have a forecast or, or any thoughts on where we might stand on the regulatory landscape, because for basically a century, we seem to get progressively weaker regulations in response to crisis. You rightly point out that the Great Depression got us the SEC, Enron and WorldCom got us Sarbanes-Oxley, the financial crisis got us the Volcker Rule. Do you think anything will come of this and will the pendulum start to swing back a little bit? You know, I I think that there might be something. I'm I'm kind of pessimistic to tell you the truth, because I think that there's just, just too much money to be made and too much financial interest. And the arguments 
and, and they're not my arguments, but the argument, um, you know, kind of wrapping yourself in, in the American flag kind of thing, democratizing finance are just too effective. So mm-hmm. I think that some rules might emerge specifically from this episode. One thing to, to note is that people did lose money, of course, uh, but it's not like 2008. It's not like 1929. Right. It's not like 2000 where the American middle class lost a ton of money, right? This was seen as a good thing. And people were mad that they their trading was restricted. And that's a big part of the story. There's all these conspiracy theories about, oh, it was hedge funds colluding to save themselves and let the people trade. We want to trade. So it's it's kind of the opposite. But I think that some, you know, the, you need a, a, a scapegoat for things. So I think that that rules on short selling are likely to be tightened, which is is not a good thing in mm. my opinion, because short sellers, I mean, they're just people out there trying to make money like everybody else. They uh, perform a vital function in terms of providing liquidity, but more important, they provide a vital function to mom and pop, who hate them, uh, because you know Enron would have been Enron for a lot longer if you if they hadn't been active in trying to make money from um, you know from exposing it. And and valiant and all these other things and tech stocks and other stuff would have stayed elevated a lot longer. So I think that you know if you're a, a retail investor and you're buying individual stocks, you don't know what the right price is. You know you you, you have all kinds of uh, biases and all kinds of uh, BS, and you have analysts recommending stuff that's vastly overvalued today. So you know there's there's just no way mathematically a lot of things are going to work out that we're talk today that we're talking about. And you have analysts on Wall Street. You know, despite all the the the, and I used to be an analyst, uh, although in emerging markets, but despite all the all the rules about conflicted research and stuff like that, you know, th- there are all kinds of other pressures that make them kind of go along with it. You know, it's very hard to to put a, a sell on Tesla, right? And then you know, and it's not very good for your career, by the way, especially if you did it a few years ago. So, you know, it's it's uh, I, I think that short sellers might face some tougher rules, which is not going to. It's going to hurt them, but it's not going to help anybody. Maybe disclosure rules that make it dif- more difficult for them to operate. Um, what I would love to see uh, is some friction added to the process. I mean, th- this is like the Bernie Sanders is a big advocate of this, and that he really for all the wrong reasons. It's more kind of a soak the rich kind of thing, but he wants uh, a trading tax. But if you were to institute uh, a small trading tax uh, and then you know not allow kind of holes in the system where people trade virtual shares and things like that, or tokenized shares or contracts for difference, then you, I think, would make people more thoughtful. And you can have, you know, of course, there, there are all kinds of things you have to be careful for. You don't want to hurt retirement funds and stuff like that. But I think there's a way that you could design it where you could slow things down and nobody really would be harmed. You'd raise a little bit of money and you'd make people a little bit more thoughtful. And, and it's not going to happen, but that, that's what I would like to see. I, I totally agree. That's what I'd like to see. Unfortunately, I think I share your pessimism on that front, just based on the incentives and the lobbyists and the the inertia involved. What about payment for order flow? Because you mentioned, and I agree that you know you couldn't have had this happen without quote unquote free trading, and you never would have had free trading without payment for order flow. And I did have to note there was a quote in the book from Sean Caston, who coincidentally is represents me in Congress. And he said, there's an, referring to Robin, there's an innate tension in your business model between democratizing finance and being a conduit to feed fish to sharks. And that would seem to cut across party lines and seem mm-hmm. to be something that, you know, whoever you are, you could get behind, right? Because that, that should be relatively obvious that, you know, you can have it 
one or the other, but not both. So do you, do you think payment for order flow will persist or do you think that's likely to get clamped down on just like some aspects of short selling? There's some, um, I, I think it's too entrenched. I mean, I think there's some poss- there's a possibility that um, it will be r- regulated more or restricted. Uh, and let me just say that this went from something that only wonky people who knew about market structure talked about ever before this episode to something that's seen as this kind of this evil, nefarious thing. It's not evil and nefarious because, I mean, I, I looked you know, very carefully at how it's done. And the way that um, that brokers dole out where the orders go, uh, the way that it's paid for, that, you know, it's, I, I think they thought about making the process fairly transparent and, and whatever. The thing is that that's what makes this possible. That's the, the only bad thing in my mind about payment for order flow. I mean, it makes everything possible. It is efficient. It's the one area really where retail investors are treated better than the big boys because they, they would never, um, you know, have like a black box filling orders in the same way for uh, for the big boys, because you, you could exploit it by putting through huge orders, but these small orders don't rock the boat. And so they're they're more profitable to process. And so they're, they're actually processed more cheaply than a mutual funds orders. But um, if you got rid of payment for order flow, I think maybe Robinhood could survive because there are people who don't use it, like Fidelity doesn't, doesn't use it. And they do the same thing themselves because they're so big that they internalize their their trades so they kind of match them internally to some extent so you know that um i i think it's just one one piece of the puzzle but i think that that maybe robin robin wouldn't have become what it is today for sure without payment for order flow i think it it perhaps could still stay in business and still could charge zero but it wouldn't be as profitable it is i i have to note that as we're recording this they've just reported uh, their quarterly results that were quite poor. They're losing users <laughs> and, and forecasted some yep. pretty weak revenue. And the stock is getting absolutely crushed uh, as we're recording yep, this. That's, on uh, the that's why I'm editing, January, uh, so. editing a column for Hurt on the Street right after I get off with you uh, yeah, about those so, results. So yeah, I'm, I, I've got an eye on it. I will be fascinated to see. I want to ask two closing questions as we bump up against time and let you get back to your uh, to your real job editing Hurt on the Street. So how do you, well, first of all, let me say that at the end, I think if anyone could, if, if you can't read the whole book, which I would recommend reading the whole book, if you have to just read the first and the last, the last chapter is kind of your coda to the whole thing, which again was like the, the opening to this whole saga to me was like, wait a minute, these retail investors are trying to stick it to the man by trading more often. Like it's just so backwards and counterproductive. And you wrote, uh, quite perfectly, I think, you know, the way to stick it to the man is by not playing his game. And later you added that the only certainty with a fund or, or any investment is its cost. And so I'll give you a chance to elaborate on any kind of closing words or advice for people. And I'd also be curious if you have any thoughts on what this will look like in, you know, say three to five years, you know, are the apes still going strong? Is this whole thing still rolling or is Robin Hood dead and gone and forgotten is this all just kind of a footnote in financial history by then um yeah so thank you very much um yeah the the whole ape thing is very strange and that's one thing i guess i'm both pleasantly and unpleasantly surprised because as somebody who spent the last year buried in this and staying up late every night and every weekend and vacation writing the book to get it out for the anniversary uh i'm it's nice that it's still a thing, right? Because the apes are are still there. It's still a story. 
Um, they're trying to make lightning strike a second, third, fourth, fifth time, and they're not succeeding because um, because they're financially naive. It's all based on on crazy theories. Somebody described it as the QAnon of finance, where they they say that there are all these phantom shares and this big conspiracy. Um, I, I think that these conspiracies never totally go away, but they just sort of people eventually drop out of it, and it's it's really based on. You know, you don't even know what what it's based on now. There's there's supposed to be the mother of all short squeezes, where they um, financial firms lose a trillion dollars because they're phantom shorts, and you know, it's like the most reasonable thing you could say to these people. Like, okay, let's say that you're right. Don't you think that all these smart people on Wall Street who spend their you know decades looking at the stuff and analyzing stuff would know about these phantom shorts also, and also be trying to make a trillion dollars? I mean. It just makes absolutely no sense. So I think that some group of, of these people is, is just going to linger for for years. It doesn't kind of matter, but it matters to my my mentions on. I don't know if you see like a lot of one star reviews in my book on on Amazon. I, I'm gonna guess that <laughs> they already have seen like you know, hey, give this guy a one star review on Goodreads and Amazon and stuff like that. So that kind of stinks. That's not nice, given how much work I put into it. But um, it's a kind of a vindictive bunch, but. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's going to take a long time to fade away. Uh, and yeah, in terms of how to treat it, that's the way to, to treat it is just don't, if you don't like wall street and I understand why, uh, young people feel some bitterness, uh, towards wall street, even though they're, they're young. Yeah. Then don't, don't pay it a lot of money. You're doing like the opposite of what, what you should be doing. You know, it's, it's like, I hate McDonald's. Hey, let's all go to McDonald's all on the same day and go to the drive-through and order five Big Macs and then they'll run out of Big Macs and they'll be in big trouble. It's kind of like doing that. Like I don't think McDonald's would really mind that, right? I mean, so it 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 makes no sense, but it, it's also difficult to in- engage with these people. And I don't try to online because it's just, you know, you just go down a endless black hole, you know? Right. Yeah, that's never going to end well for anybody. So, yeah, I mean, in terms of the the, the line, I'll, I'll for, never forget the day I found out my sons were degenerates. I had a similar experience around, uh, it would have been in the spring of last year when I was playing in a, in a golf tournament, a very fancy high-end country club with a couple of guys that were probably in their 40s or 50s and very wealthy and successful. And then the caddies who were probably your son's age. And within maybe 15 minutes, you know, they, they asked what I did for a living and I, I told them and it immediately jumped onto, they all owned AMC, GameStop, Dogecoin, the whole thing. And that's when I said, wow, this is <laughs> much, much broader than I thought. So my antidote to that is going to be, uh, I'm going to buy several of these, several copies of this book. The title again is the revolution that wasn't GameStop, Reddit and the fleecing of small investors, because I do get this question a lot from people that are perfectly capable of understanding it, right? If you're willing yeah. to risk thousands of your own dollars, you ought to be willing to risk a few of your own hours to read this book. And I think um, it, it'll certainly appeal to any of our listeners out there that are into financial history and behavioral psychology and, and the craziness that permeates this market that we all operate in. But I think it's also an important book for, for small investors, as you wrote right there in the subtitle. So Spencer, thank you much, very much for joining us. This was a real pleasure and uh, congratulations on the book. Thank you very much. All right. Take care. Thank you for listening to This Week in Intelligent Investing, brought to you exclusively by MOI Global, the research-driven membership organization. Learn more at moiglobal.com.